expand. Yeah, you can do that. That's great. And, uh, and let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the gift of this day, the gift of that song, the gift of voices raised together as a reminder that those words uh, may in fact be true. That there's a love that comes from you that binds us stronger than anything that can divide us. There's a, there's a love that comes from you which is, uh, which is uh, uncontainable, unstoppable. And it moves directly toward us and offers us grace and, and mercy for every time we are willing to, to open our eyes to receive it. And I recognize that for us in this room, coming from different places throughout this week and having different experiences this week, for some of us that feels so palpably true that your goodness and your love is unstoppable in our lives. And I pray that if that's the case for anyone in this room, that by your spirit you would give us the boldness to speak about that in this world through our, through our words and through our deeds. And I also recognize for some of us this week has been challenging and it's followed up a, a, a challenging or difficult season. And the unstoppable nature of your love seems a little harder to, to believe or feel or, or can even conceptualize. And so, God, I pray that by your spirit you would show up as you promise us you'll do and, and, and remind us who you are and remind us of your great love and remind us that we are never alone because you have come to us and you have come for us. And so our circumstances may in, be in conflict with that truth, but I pray that we would remember that that truth wins. And so as we come to your word, I pray that it would change our hearts and our hearts would be changed for your service. And it's in the powerful and redemptive name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I wanted to share with you guys uh, a book about a book that I read recently. I'm not going to read a whole book for you. I'm going to share about a book that I, that I read recently. It's called Make Your Bed. And that is an intriguing title to me because I highly value making my bed. And so uh, it, it conformed to my existing beliefs, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But the book is actually the transcript of a commencement speech at the University of Texas by retired U.S. Navy Admiral William H. McRaven. And the speech, and then subsequent book, outlines 10 things that he learned in Navy SEAL training that have shaped his life and he believes can actually change the world, including starting the day by making your bed because you start with a task accomplished and then it's all downhill from there. But in this book, he talks a lot about how strenuous the training itself was and how it's designed to eliminate those not cut out to be SEALs. And he talks about one particularly brutal exercise, one particularly brutal day as the trainees went through a whole day of exercises and they were near the point of exhaustion after a week of sleep deprivation. They're taken down by the instructors to the Tijuana mud flats and they're ordered into the mud as the sun sets and it gets bone-chillingly cold to continue their exercises through the night. And it was brutal, the way he described it and, and, and the discomfort that set in. The shivering trainees were there, almost unable to complete the exercises because of the, the physical uh, torture that they were enduring in some sense, the, the hardship they were enduring. And then as things got really bad, and again, sleep deprivation started to really kick in and exhaustion really starts to kick in, the instructor, the instructor gently says to the trainees, hey guys, we can quit. This can all be over. Everybody can go home. We can all put up our feet. We can get, we can get warm. 
we can get a nice meal, we can get a good night's sleep. I know you haven't slept in days, you can get a good night's sleep. Just five of you need to quit. If five of you quit and go home and quit the training, then we can all be done and it can all be over, guys. You don't have to endure this anymore. At that, one of the trainees made a movement toward exiting the mud pit. They were neck deep in the mud at this point, and, and it was just too much to overcome. And so one starts to make a movement. And instinctively, another trainee grabs that one by the arm and locks arms with him. And then instinctively from there, all the trainees start to lock arms together in a sign that the only way through this is actually together. We have to do this together. And so they're all locking arms together, the next one grabbing the next one, grabbing the next one. And then neck deep in the mud, one of the trainees starts to sing. The instructor didn't like this at all, and he was like, hey, that's, we're not going to do that. Uh, you can stop it altogether. But the will to continue and the, and the sign of solidarity was so strong, all the trainees started to sing together. Everyone there in the mud, different sizes and abilities and colors and backgrounds, neck deep in mud, but everyone the same in the mud. Everyone struggling. Everyone fighting together, not against each other. McCraven writes this, if that one person could sing while neck deep in the mud, then so could we. If one person could endure the freezing cold, then so could we. If one person could hold on, so could we. If you walk away, it allows other people to walk away. But if you stick it out, it helps the person next to you stick it out as well. And so when you're in the mud, McCraven says this, two things that could change this world. He says, don't quit and start singing. Don't quit and start singing. We're continuing in Galatians today, like I talked about. We're in chapter 2, which is a chapter about unity. And it points to those two valuable reminders. Don't quit and start singing. How not quitting and being willing to sing, even when we're neck deep in the mud, actually matters. Galatians is a book in the New Testament, a letter written to a group of churches in the region of Galatia around 10 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul, who wrote a bunch of the New Testament, writes this church to be circulated, writes this letter to be circulated around the churches in this region. Already, within 10 years or so of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there are things starting to stand in the way of the community of Christians being what God had called them to be. There were tensions between Gentiles and Jewish followers of Jesus, between new believers in Christ and people who had made it their life goal and generations before them had made it their life goal to keep God's commandments. And the tension came in whether different groups of people could actually make one community. Was it actually even possible? Think for a second about everything you know about the New Testament, everything you know about the scriptures. Think about uh, all, the, all, all the, the ink that is spilled throughout the, the New Testament on different issues, the problems that we might face of all those problems that we might face today, which one do you think gets the most press in the New Testament, the most time spent, the most written about in the New Testament, especially in Galatians? Based on scriptural frequency, it appears that God is very much concerned with one thing as much as he's concerned with anything else and maybe more. Is it lying? Is it greed? Is it love of money? Is it abuse of power? 
All those things are talked about in the New Testament, some of them very often, and the scriptures are clear and consistent that we should avoid these at all costs. But it appears the division among believers, lack of unity in the church of believers is of paramount importance to Jesus and the early church based on how much Jesus and Paul write about it. It comes up about 70 times in the New Testament. Unity matters to Jesus. And I think here's why. I think because lack of unity or division actually illustrates a chasm that can be created between the gospel believed and the gospel lived. We'll unpack that a little bit together, but a chasm between the gospel believed and the gospel lived. And Galatians chapter 2 puts this right into focus, and and he puts it into focus around a meal, around a dinner table of all places. Paul just jumps right in in chapter 2, starting in verse 11, so we're going to do that as well. It's in your bulletin. If you have a Bible, you can look at that. Uh, or you can just listen along as well. But here's what Paul writes. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Here's what's going on. Paul is recounting an event to the Galatian church, an event that happened in the city of Antioch. There, Cephas, Cephas is an Aramaic word, name. Uh, The Greek translation for that is Peter. So Peter, one of the original 12 apostles, shows up at Antioch. And while he's there with this Gentile Christian church, these non-Jewish followers of Jesus, he dines with them, he eats with them, until other Jews, these are Paul, or, uh, Paul and Peter's people, they were Jewish by, by heritage, by culture, until those group of people show up in Antioch, and then Peter says, no thanks. So he eats with Gentile Christians until other Jews like him show up, and then he's like, no thanks. Those are the basic facts of what happened, but there's so much going on in these couple of verses. So let's dig into that together. And I know the scripture doesn't necessarily say it happened like this, but here's how I picture this event that we just read happening. You ever been to one of those big meals? Maybe it's a a company picnic or Thanksgiving where there's like extended family there. And so it's so long, you can't keep up with every part of the conversation. So there's a lot of different conversations that happen. So you're at one end having your conversation about whatever. And then all of a sudden you hear at the end, there's there's a little argument that starts. But, you know, you know those people and you maybe even like those people, but that seems like that's their problem and I'm kind of just eating my Thanksgiving dinner down here. So you guys figure that out down there. We'll talk about it later, like over dessert or something. And then all of a sudden one person stands up and says, you're a hypocrite, right, at family dinner. And what do you do? Well, if you're like me, you kind of like put your head down and you push your food around and then if it keeps going, like if they keep arguing, you kind of talk to the person next to you. You're like, is that butternut squash? I, l- I didn't know that I liked butternut squash. Seems like I like butternut squash. Do you think there's cumin in there? I know they're using cumin a lot these days. you think I could get that recipe and you kind of just cover because you don't want to be a part of what's going on there? Allrecipe.com? You think I can just find the recipe? for anyway, so And you just hope it just stops, right? In this scene, we see Peter, whom Jesus himself said was the rock on which I will build my church, being openly questioned by Paul, who wasn't even one of the original 12. This is a big deal. But why? Why is it a big deal? Why is what happens at a dinner table such a big thing in the early church? Why can't Peter eat with whoever he wants and then decide to not eat with whoever he wants? 
Well, to understand the answer to that and to understand why it matters to us today, you actually have to understand the cultural context of the day. In the ancient world, the world in which Peter and Paul lived in, who you ate with illustrated your status. So let me kind of unpack that a little bit. So if you were wealthy, you would eat with wealthy people. If you were powerful, you would eat with powerful people. But if a wealthy or powerful person decided to eat with what would be considered a common person, they would take on socially that status. Essentially, you came down to the status of the person, the lowest person in the room. That's why when Jesus eats with the people he eats with, it's so scandalous and so amazing. But we even see vestiges of this today. And there's a sense sometimes it's like, well, I don't want to be seen with those people. Why don't you want to be seen with those people? Because you take on their status. You become associated with them. Go to any middle school lunchroom today, you will see this played out. This is still very, very present. In the ancient world, people were broken up into two categories. You were Jewish, you were, you were God's chosen people, or you were Gentile. You were not. That's, that's one way to, to divide people up. Jews were God's promised people. They were God's chosen people. They were set apart people. They, they were meant to and did their best to display the otherness of God, the goodness of God. They took this very seriously for good reason. They followed cleanliness laws, and, and they desired to honor God by being holy and blameless and live clean lives. Those are all really good things. They're in line with God's character. The issue is, in some places, culturally, being chosen or being set apart could actually lead to this kind of ugly potential, the, t- the potential belief that if I'm chosen, I'm good. And if you're not chosen, you're not good. You're bad. In the world in which Peter and Paul lived, that meant uh, essentially, and this is, a, this is a, a, a simplification of it, but essentially Jews were thought of as clean, Gentiles were thought of as unclean. Because if you're non-Jewish, you weren't God's display people, and you were an outsider, if you, and if you can't be good, you, you must be bad, right? And so Jews didn't eat with Gentiles just as a, as a norm of life. In order to remain clean before the Lord, Jews simply didn't associate with unclean Gentiles. And holding these dietary laws and cultural markers and practices tended toward, in, in, in the worst of cases, toward a, a developing racism of sorts. That's what we would probably call it today. Racism that, that could potentially even be seen all the way back with Jonah. Jonah, the prophet, is he hears from God and he say, God says, hey, go to Nineveh, right? Go, go tell them about my love. And Jonah doesn't want to go. It's implied that Jonah didn't want to see Gentiles repent, or at least he didn't want to be the messenger to tell them that they could. And so in this day, Jews sometimes resented, sometimes even hated Gentiles, and they kept separate. Peter grew up in this cultural environment, and this is the cultural environment in which the table interaction of Galatians 2 happens. And so we can think of this as just a religious issue, but that doesn't tell the whole story. Peter was a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus. He was saved by the grace of Christ in Antioch with other Christians who were saved by the grace of Christ. They were the same faith. See, because in Antioch, the Gentiles had become followers of Jesus after hearing the gospel. They believed that Jesus died for all humanity. They believed that they needed Jesus to come. They believed that Jesus' death and resurrection led to the death of sin for them. They believed that Jesus' sacrifice is how you would become in right relationship with God and how you entered into God's family. They believed that Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. The gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. 
want to tell you the story about my daughter coming home. Uh, my daughter's adopted 11 years ago. We brought her home from Guatemala, and uh, it was a long adoption process. It was a difficult adoption process, uh, but we're so thankful to have her home. But when she came home, she wasn't yet a U.S. citizen. She was uh, our daughter, but not yet a U.S. citizen, so we had to go through an immigration process, not as strenuous or difficult or even as long as many people uh, have to go through in, in their uh, immigration process, but it was an immigration process nonetheless. And at the end of that process, what happened is we went down to the immigration office and we went into this big room with people from all over the world with different languages and cultures and backgrounds and, and they were all there to become U.S. citizens. It was beautiful. There was every tribe and tongue and nation in that room. And what would happen is they would call up a name and a person would come up to a window and they would say an oath and they'd be handed an American flag and then everybody would cheer, right? There's Eden on that day. And so they'd cheer because, of, because we're together. We're one thing. We're U.S. citizens in this moment. And so as the day wore on, Eden was kind of laid on the docket and so the room had mostly cleared out save a couple of people in this big room and this one sweet Asian couple was, uh, was there and they'd befriended Eden and they'd been playing together and they were waiting with us. And so Eden finally gets called up and Abby takes her up there and because Eden was only a year or two old, the, the oath, Abby took the oath for her, which I guess is legal and uh, they, they haven't said it, it's not. So I assume that it is and they handed her a flag and this Asian couple stood to their feet and they clapped for her the whole way out. It was a big moment. In that moment, right inside that building in the background, my daughter became a full citizen. She was granted full citizenship. She wasn't an observer. She wasn't a second-class citizen. She had full rights along with every single person in that room that day from all those different backgrounds. In similar fashion, citizenship in God's kingdom doesn't have conditions. It doesn't have second-class citizen ranks. And that should impact us. It should impact how we think about ourselves. It should impact how we think about the world around us. No matter who you are or what you bring, you're invited in, not into second-class citizenship, not into kingdom community observation from the outside. No matter who you are or what you bring, you're invited to receive the gospel in full. No matter who you are or what you bring, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. That's the gospel. So in Antioch, we find it lived out. We find ethnically different people with different cultural practices united around the promise of God, salvation available to all through Jesus. And they're in fellowship together, and they're in community together, and they're even eating together. And remember, in the ancient world, who you ate with was the status you took on. Essentially, what these believers were saying is no matter who you are or where you come from, what unites us, what we want to rally around, what we want to be defined as is a group of people saved by Christ. Peter comes to Antioch. He's in this Gentile church, different than him ethnically. And what does he do at first? He does what, have, what would have been amazing in that day, unexpected in that day. He eats with Gentiles. And he did so because of what he saw in Jesus, how he saw Jesus living, and also what he heard from Jesus. He saw Jesus displaying the importance of loving others, and you can't love others from a distance. He saw the importance of being with others to communicate that, no matter who you are or where you come from, you can receive the gospel. 
And Peter's in there. He's in this beautiful scene. What a unifying moment. Jesus is right-hand man, ethnically different than some of the people in the room with other ethnically different people living the gospel together until the scene changes quickly. Jews, Peter's people, they come from Jerusalem and Peter steps away from the table. Paul continues in verse 14 with his response. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, again Peter, in front of all of them, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. When Peter steps away from the table, his theology and his living were in conflict. Peter's theology was right. We actually see this. We, we, we go back to Acts chapter 10. If you flipped back there, you'd see Peter getting this very practical uh, message from God about what the kingdom community he came to bring is supposed to look like. And this is a bit weird, but essentially he gets this vision of all different kinds of animal. Remember, the, the, the Jewish cleanliness laws would say some, some animals are okay, some aren't, and, and how they're prepared is important. But he sees this vision of all different kinds of animals, and then he hears a voice say, rise, Peter, kill and eat, which is a little bit abrupt. But Peter's response tells us so much. He says, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean or impure. Essentially what he's saying is, I, I don't act like a Gentile. I'm one of the chosen ones. I'm a set-apart one, and if I do what you're asking me to do, how will people know that? How will people know that I'm one of the special ones if I don't look like it? But God then says something amazing. He says there's nothing unclean anymore. The dietary laws, the cultural and racial markers of in and out, those, those are over. The dividing wall is broken down now. Jews and Gentiles are one. See, the gospel says Jesus sacrificed all and that should bring unity. That should bring us all together. The theology wasn't wrong. What Paul is calling out, the hypocrisy, as he called it, wasn't wrong theology. It was wrong living. See, followers of Jesus were there in Antioch. They were down in the mud of, of difficult, inconvenient unity. And Peter was there with them until he quits. And this is what Paul is telling Peter. This is the line of thinking. God didn't receive you on the basis of your race or your culture or even your practices. Though your, your practices were good and you were devout and they did point to holy living and a holy God, your race and your customs had nothing to do with it. Therefore, why are you only associating with people that follow your, your race and your customs and your practices? Right theology but wrong living. And right theology with wrong living is always infectious. People will always join in to right theology and, and wrong living. Sometimes whole communities will join in on that, and that's the case here. Even Barnabas joins along, Paul says. So Paul calls Peter out. He tells him essentially, don't quit. Jesus plus nothing, I get it. That's a difficult way to live, but don't quit. See, Peter was doing it right. He opened up his life 
to people not like him. He came to the table all up until that moment where there was pressure, until it got hard, until he was neck deep in the mud. And maybe it was muscle memory. Maybe that's what kicked in. Maybe when familiar people showed up, it, 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 was, just, it was just easier to, to fall back into like, yeah, this is the pattern I know. This is the way things are supposed to work. Maybe it was fear of ridicule. Maybe he didn't want to be seen as one of them, you know, taking the status of the other. But in that moment, Peter was no longer willing to risk it. It wasn't that he forgot the gospel. It wasn't that he forgot theology. He just decided not to live the implications of the gospel. And I think we do that sometimes as well. Hard as it is to come face to face with, face with, I think we do that as well. Theologically, we know God is the way, and he's made a way for all, regardless of race or culture or background or education. But in practice, I think we live less than that truth sometimes. Maybe it's muscle memory for us as well. Maybe it's just like, well, I remember this way. This is kind of, I just kind of go to my corner, to my comfort zone, and that's just kind of how I live. I live in that little circle. Or maybe we don't want to be inconvenienced. Maybe we recognize that it's going to be hard and we just don't want to stay in the mud. So it's easier not to, to be unified, not to make that a priority, so we just quit. Maybe we don't want to see, seem as less good than we think we ought to be seen, and so we don't want to associate. I'm not sure what all the reasons are, but I know that we're called to more than going off to our corner. I've talked about this in the past. Over the last couple years, uh, I've learned more about and, and been more deeply convicted by the refugee crisis in our world. There's 65 million displaced people in our world. That's 65 million people that can't go to their home either because it's too dangerous because of war or it's too dangerous uh, because of other factors, disease, famine, it could be any other any number of things. But 65 million people can't go home. And that's not just an over there problem. Uh, in, in the last few years, 1,200 of, of those 65 million have been relocated to the Orlando area. So there are 1,200 refugees that have been resettled here. And there's an organization called the African Family and Community Outreach Organization. It's led by a guy named Pastor Gabriel, wonderful guy. And I was talking with him at one point, and he was sharing with me a conversation he had with a family that's been here seven years. They've been in the U.S. in Orlando for seven years. And the husband of this family said, in seven years, there's not one American family that's invited us over for a meal. Now, a vast majority of those 1,200 families that are settled here from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and a vast majority of those are Christians. That's our family. That should break our hearts. That should break the hearts of kingdom citizens. Tim Keller says this, we instinctively tend to limit for whom we will exert ourselves. We'll exert ourselves for people like us and for people we like. But Jesus seems to say, I'll have none of that. We might not have the same restrictions that were at the center of the confrontation between Peter and Paul. Maybe we live in a, but even if those, those aren't the same challenges, maybe we live in a way that, that is more than Jesus plus nothing. Maybe it's Jesus plus something. I mean, if we think, maybe we think if, if someone doesn't come from the right place, which usually means doesn't come from my place, or they don't look the right way, which usually means they don't look like me, or if they don't say the right things, which usually means they don't talk like me, or they don't have the right political opinions, which usually means they don't have my political opinions, or they don't have a deep enough understanding of the scriptures. 
or they don't follow the same rules, or they don't live like me, so on and so on and so on. And because of those things, anywhere on that list, because of those things, there just isn't space at my table for them. Or maybe like Peter, we see that they're at a table we're at, and we say, you know what, I don't, I don't know if I have time, ability, willingness to, to engage with that, so you step away from the table. That's not Jesus plus nothing. It's not. There's actually a term for this clinically, for what this is called. It's called confirmation bias. It's the favoring of information that conforms to your existing beliefs and practices and discounts anything that is counter to those existing beliefs or practices. And whether positive or negative, these, uh, these cognitive shortcuts that, that we can take can result in prejudgments that lead to rash decisions and even discriminatory practices. And that can stand in the way of the unity Jesus came to bring. I think this is where unity lives and dies in the church. Will we quit when we're neck deep in the mud surrounded by people that are different than us? Or will we lock arms and say, we'll be in this together? Will we remember the true gospel together and will we live the true gospel together? Jewish Christians at Antioch, they preached a gospel that said, someone could be a Christian if you followed Jesus plus took on the cultural practices of, of looking and acting Jewish. So it said anybody can be a part of the kingdom family of God if you trust Jesus and make yourself look like me. Jesus plus something. But Paul says that's no gospel at all. It wasn't a gospel then. It's not a gospel now. But verse 20 and 21 tell what that true gospel is. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. and It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, if righteousness could be gained through your upbringing, if righteousness could be gained through your position, if righteousness could be gained through your status in this world, if righteousness could be gained through your race, then Christ died for nothing. And here... Paul's not trying to win an argument. Paul is for Peter. What he's saying to Peter is like, look, I don't want you to miss out on this. God is doing this incredible thing. He's changing everything. Don't miss out on it because you want to go sit in the corner. He's for Peter. He doesn't try to win an argument with him to, to, to obliterate him. He's trying to say, come join this with us. He's saying, I'm thankful for this life that I have that's been changed by Christ and it's leading me to think differently about myself, and it's leading me to think differently about other people, and it's leading me to think differently about how big God's grace is. Join me. And this is important. Paul's not saying this, because I think we can, we, we can interpret it this way, and this is really important. He's not saying living a life that reflects Christ, one of honesty and kindness and goodness and faithfulness in your relationships. He's not saying that stuff's useless now because of the gospel. Far from it. He's saying that's still the best way to live. But what Paul is saying is we need to die to the idea that that's how we become loved by God. As Zach said last week, the gospel is not what we do for God. It's what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And he offers nothing but full kingdom citizenship to anyone who will receive it. So this kingdom that we're citizens of, the one that Jesus came to bring, 
it can't be just a bunch of people looking alike. It can't be a group of people with all the same backgrounds and the same ethnicity and the same socioeconomics. Jesus came that we could have unity with people that are different than us. And we're made better if we do. And if we don't do this, if we don't pursue this, it's not a net neutral. It's not like a neutral effect, like, oh, it'll be fine. It'll all be figured out. No, right theology but wrong living is infectious and it hurts all of us. So let's imagine for a second what unity could look like, seeking unity could look like for us this week. You may ask the question based on what I just said a minute ago. Should I invite a refugee family to, to dinner? I, I don't know, maybe. And if you think you want to do that, I can put you in contact with Pastor Gabriel. I've had one person already ask. And we're going to try and put that together this week, which I would love. There's one person that wants to do it. What if you're a student and this week you intentionally went to that other table and intentionally talked to those people that are different than you that you don't normally talk to? What could happen? I don't know. Could it shift a culture? Maybe. In your workplace, what if you decided this week to ask more questions to and gave less input about others? Ask more questions to and gave less input about others. What if you ask somebody from the other political aisle, the, the other side of the aisle, what if you ask them not what their policies are, but why they feel the way they feel? What if you invited somebody to summit, not because they look like you, but because we might be better because they are different? And as I look a little further down the road, as I think about how we're going to pursue this new local service strategy and initiative to care for vulnerable children's, vulnerable children in our local church or local schools and, and in the foster care system. When I think about that, I realize something that's so important we are going to have to break from whatever comfortable circles we've created for ourselves. It's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to come in contact with people that are different than us. And we're going to have to resist the temptation to say that the goal is to make you look like me. I think there's always going to be a whisper. There's always going to be a whisper in the background that, that says this difficulty, this trying to seek unity thing, it's too much. It's too hard. And it can all be over. Just quit. Just walk away. Go to the comfort of your own corner. But my encouragement, my, my plead, I'm pleading with you, don't. Stay. Jesus didn't come so that we would draw back or separate ourselves from others or add additional qualifications on being in to other people. He came to give life for all. So we call out what needs to be called out, and we do so being for the person that we're calling it out in. And we grab somebody by the arms, and we invite them into what we're doing here and where we're headed together. Unity with people that are different than us, it's hard work. If it wasn't, Peter wouldn't have stumbled, and we wouldn't either. But stay. Because if the gospel shows us anything, it shows us that love always stays. It doesn't walk out. And love always keeps us singing a better song than one of division. Remember the Navy SEALs? Locking arms. Relentlessly pursuing, be fighting together, being together, unwilling to quit, and then they start singing. One person neck deep in the mud, being willing to sing in that adversity can prompt others to sing as well. And I believe one person or one people relentlessly pursuing unity can prompt others to lock arms and pursue it as well, to seek unity as well. We're kingdom citizens. 
full citizenship. And we can hold together in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of differences, and we can cheer one another on, and we can sing a better song. So let's do that together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the challenge of your word. Thank you for the hope of your gospel. Thank you that there is nothing we can do to limit your love that you really have a vision for and will bring to fruition every tribe and tongue and nation coming around your throne with you in the center and we'll be doing what we're made to do. We'll be worshiping you because you came for all. I pray that wherever we are fearful of living into that truth now and seeing as much of that come on earth as it is in heaven now, wherever we're fearful of that, I pray that you would change our hearts. I pray that you would give us boldness and courage to listen, to hear, and to see other people, that we might be better in how we see you because of it. And I pray for wherever we've put comfort at the top of our list, I pray that we would rearrange the list and we'd put gospel at the top and we would put hurting people and lost people and people that are far from you at the top of that list and that we would throw open as many doors as we possibly can to invite in as many people as possible to lock arms and sing a song of unity and of love that you started singing and you invite us to continue. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.